Welcome to this edition of DCS Talks, a podcast production of the Tennessee Department of Children's Services. The intention of DCS Talks is to promote dialogue among child welfare professionals, foster parents, and the entire community about ways to prevent child abuse and neglect. I'm Serena Wilson, a training manager at DCS, and I'm your host for this edition. Today, I'm thrilled to be interviewing Mr. Donovan Haynes, who is the Director of Affirmative Action at DCS in the Office of Internal Affairs. Mr. Haynes has numerous duties as the Affirmative Action Director, and one of the most important roles he oversees is as the Title VI Coordinator for DCS. He works to ensure that we stay in compliance with the federal laws around Title VI and that our community partners and providers that we have contracts with are also in uh, in compliance. I've had the pleasure to support Mr. Haynes' work when he conducts the Title VI annual provider trainings, and I asked him today to join us and discuss his role and the significance of Title VI. Donovan, welcome to DCS Talks. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you, Serena. I'm happy to be here. That's great. I know you've been with the department for numerous years. Tell us about your experiences with DCS and and also tell us about your current role as the the Affirmative Action Director. Sure. One role before I actually get into Title VI, I'm currently in the role of Step 1 Appeal Designee. What that is, is whenever an employee appeals a disciplinary action, say a suspension, a termination, I actually coordinate that meeting to hear the appeal, the concern obviously regarding the disciplinary action issued that the employee present, that position is, you know, very important. Obviously, it can be uh, demanding. Mm. The step one appeal designee, just a meeting, just an outline, and then I'll move more into Title VI information. Mm -hmm. The meeting usually has the employee present was appealing the disciplinary action issues, a management representative, and then TSEA, which joined at times. Now, TSEA is a non-verbal participant in that meeting, and then, of course, I'll be there to facilitate. So that's a very important role as well. Now, just in the context of my experiences in, in child welfare, here at DCS, I'm more administrative in support of staff and clients. However, prior to DCS, I used to work with Head Start, and I was with Head Start for three years. Head Start, for those who don't know, is a pre-K program which prepares three- and four-year-olds for kindergarten. Mm -hmm. And so I had the, I would say, great opportunity to be at what was called at the time Barry International Head Start and that school was relatively big as there were 258 children. Wow. So there were 13, yeah, there were 13 classrooms, 12 classrooms were for four-year-olds, and you could put 24-year-olds in a room, and one classroom had three-year-olds who you could put 18, and each classroom consisted of a teacher and a teacher assistant. And so that was a great experience because I, prior to coming to DCS, I had entertained the thought of becoming a principal, so that was a good chance to get insight on what that may, you know, look like. A great opportunity, had 46 staff, six family service workers, 26 teachers, five bus drivers. Uh, We had before and after care, so uh, it was significant. But one thing that I can appreciate while I was at Barry is that it was revealing at that time the diversity within Nashville. And, And I say that because even when we would send out a routine notice to parents, such as a school closing due to a holiday, 
maybe July 4th. We would send that letter out in English, the same letter out in Spanish, the mm-hmm. same letter out in two different dialects of Kurdish because wow. some may know that the Kurdish population in Nashville is very large. It used to be probably the third largest in the nation in the U.S. So it was wow. very, like I say, eye-opening, just getting exposed to different cultures. I used to have a banner in the school that was near my office and it said, our diversity is our strength. Aww. So I really, uh, and there was definitely benefit in that. No kidding. That's really neat. Head Start has so many great outcomes, and it's so exciting to hear diversity being embraced. And I bet it really set you up to have all these great experiences to bring to the role of the affirmative action director. I think it did, and, and yeah. I would agree with that. Even after, you know, we did those, uh, helped you with the trainings and some of the things that uh, you brought out in the trainings, I can see were connected to some of your early experiences with Head Start. That's really neat. Yeah, yeah, it was. That's great. So some of our listeners are learning about child welfare in Tennessee in general. You talked about sort of mediating with employees in your role as the affirmative action director. What Are, are there other types of processes? I know you, you work with our providers or, as well. Tell us about the Office of Affirmative Action in general, Donovan? Yes, yeah, some of the under affirmative action from the reporting side, there are, there's information we submit to DOHR. For example, affirmative action deals with areas like workplace harassment, abusive conduct in the workplace, and even uh, ADA is a program area that falls under it. With regard to reporting, we submit information about our complaints that we receive workplace harassment either on an annual or semi-annual basis to DOHR as they request it. There's also a focal point as far as still in the reporting area here. We have a uh, equal employment opportunity monitoring evaluation report we have to send as well. That deals with us uh, making an assessment of current positions within the department and even identifying areas of need to submitting goals to develop and hire in those areas. But now with regard to workplace harassment, it's dealing with protected classes that are identified at the federal level that the state supports generally or our policy, DCS policy for Dash 20, which addresses workplace harassment, identifies 10 protected classes in that area. There's also under affirmative action or the Office of Civil Rights, we also process complaints that may not be necessarily discriminatory in nature, but are concerning, and those may fall within the abusive conduct area. Mm-hmm. Lastly, the ADA component, which is, of course, dealing with the Americans with Disabilities Act. So if an employee feels that he or she needs a workplace accommodation as a result of a disability, he or she would actually contact, well, Internal Affairs, which the Office of Civil Rights and the Affirmative Action component is under currently, to they submit their request for an accommodation and it would be processed under that area. That's kind of the uh, areas that I oversee. And also there's a client aspect as well. Of course, we have employees, but also So if a client feels that she needs an accommodation, maybe there's a child family team meeting that's about to occur. And let's say the client is is deaf. We, the department, may need to provide an accommodation to make sure that that client is able to successfully engage in that meeting. Okay. I was aware that you serve our employees, and I was not aware that your office also oversees our clients as well. Yes. Clients can also, you know, file a discrimination complaint, a request Mm -hmm. an accommodation under ADA as well. Yeah. Wow. You know, just to give some scope, I know we have over 
3,000 staff. We have about 12,000 foster parents and serve the entire state, all 95 counties of Tennessee. So I know that given the scope of your work that there's probably see a lot of different situations and are able to mediate a lot of different issues that come up with that diverse group of people. Yeah, I do encounter various situations, but I do want to say big kudos to the employees within the department because DCS is, in my opinion, very well structured as far as processes, procedures. Considering that fact, it's very easy or it's easier to handle concerns as they are brought up because we do have, whether it's a protocol or procedure in place to address it, whether it's a complaint, whether it's a need for an accommodation, you know, a need for a particular service. Again, there is definitely benefit in having organized procedures. You know, it took a lot of effort and work to develop that infrastructure so that that all is in place so that we have steps to take when situations arise. I know you work with our provider agencies to ensure we're all compliant with the federal law that's associated with Title VI. Tell us a little bit about Title VI and where that law comes from and and what it includes. Um, Well, Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is a federal law which prohibits uh, local, state, or federal entities or programs that receive federal funds from discriminating against participants on the basis of race, color, and national origin. Mm -hmm. A big piece is that the Title VI is federal and it deals with funding, so anyone who receives monies, federal monies from the federal government must comply with the requirements of Title VI. And one of the things that I want to point out or just mention, with the protected class of national origin, out of that come the LEP. And LEP is the acronym stands for a limited in English proficiency. So there are times that our department or some providers under contract with us may encounter persons who want to participate in an activity in a program, but they're limited in their English proficiency. And as a result of our department receiving money from the federal government, we have to provide accommodation assistance to that respective person without cost. Here at DCS, one of the things that, well, a vendor who we utilize for interpreter services, so if we had someone, for example, say, and let's just say the person spoke Mandarin Chinese and Mm -hmm. they needed to communicate with our staff let's just say possibly for a child family team meeting, we could call a vendor called Avaza, A-V-A-Z-A, and actually have someone coordinate that meeting with us as far as provide interpreter services. And then also, you know, there's times when an individual who is LEP may need to have documents translated in their language so that they understand a process. And we here at DCS can use Avaza. We can use our delegated authority, which is basically an agreement that outlines Line expectations if someone was do- translating documentation for DCS, here's the cost per word, here's the cost right. per page that DCS is willing to pay, I should say. Yeah. So if they are um, credentialed and qualified, meaning the vendor, then of course we can utilize them for that. And one of the things I like to do, and, and you're aware of this, Serena, like in our training, when we're talking about national origin and LEP, I like to pose the question to the participants in the training, if a child was born in Nashville in 2014, so that makes the child six years old because it's 2020 now, Mm -hmm. child's going into the first grade, is it possible that the child needs 
assistance with language. Is it possible that the child who's six years old, let's say born in Nashville in 2014, is limited in, I'm going to say her, her English proficiency? And so Mm -hmm. most people, after maybe the first hearing of that, would say, no, why would a child who's born in Nashville, in Tennessee, in the United States, need uh, language assistance or be limited in their English proficiency? Mm -hmm. But then, as you know, and we discussed in, in class that a big part of national origin deals with lineage and ancestry, meaning so if the child's parents, let's just say, are of Kurdish descent and their aunts and uncles and their grandparents, so the extended family speaks Kurdish Mm -hmm. as the first language or dialect of Kurdish, then the child will speak that as well. So as a result, the child may need assistance with with language. It may not be mm-hmm. as proficient as one may, again, just think without knowing the details of the situation. So, uh, yeah. again, with Title VI, the focal point is on those three protected classes of race, color, and national origin. And it's important to realize that with national origin, there is the component of uh, that deals with rather LEP that always needs to be considered. And we need to be mindful. And just lastly, with regard to this, because DCS receives federal funding from federal government, the expectation is that the money DCS receives that we have in place a system, a mechanism to assist persons who are limited. And it would be the same thing, or it is the same thing, when DCS extends money to our providers who provide mm-hmm. services on behalf of the department, those providers also are under the requirements of Title VI. And so if their respective agency encounters a person who's limited in English proficiency, the money DCS has extended to that vendor, that, that provider, must be used also to assist that person at no cost to the person who's limited in their English proficiency. Right. I, I think that's something people don't always realize is that if DCS has a contract with a provider, someone who's providing parenting classes or something like that, they are also under the same guidelines of Title VI because they are receiving federal money even though it's through us. That's right. So what kinds of things does Title VI do? So uh, just some of the things that Title VI does, it prohibits entities from providing services or benefits to some individuals that are different or Mm -hmm. inferior to those provided to others. It prohibits locating facilities in any way that would limit or impede access to a federally funded service or Mm -hmm. benefit. One of the things that we mentioned in training with regard to locating facilities, we remind providers that once you know your client base, then you need to be mindful of making sure that they have meaningful access to your service. For example, let's say that agency ABC provides a service and most of their clients utilizes public transportation to get to agency ABC. And let's Mm -hmm. say agency ABC decides, well, the environment that we're in, we're concerned about safety and some other things, so we're looking to relocate. And even in the consideration, I mean, that is most would say a reasonable reason to locate if, you know, maybe the area is getting bad for whatever reason, Mm -hmm. then you want to keep in mind, though, let's say agency ABC decides they want to move out to a very rural area, which has very limited public transportation options. And let's say that a significant number of their client base depends on public transportation to get to their agency to receive the services that they qualify for. You want to keep that in mind because one thing that Title VI also focuses on is ensuring meaningful access. And it's not just discrimination is not just a flat-out denial of a 
service, it could be a delay, a, a mm -hmm. consistent delay of receiving a service may raise a red flag. So mm -hmm. even with relocating and then just, you know, some other things, the focal point obviously is, is not discriminating in Title VI prohibit activity in a facility built in whole or part of federal funds from discriminating, mm -hmm. requires information and services to be provided in languages other than English when a significant number of beneficiaries are of limited speaking ability. And one of the things that we mentioned also in training is that if Department of Children's Services, which is a very large department and in all 95 counties, I think, within Tennessee, if our department received, let's just say, federal funding to make some improvement to, I'm going to say, Wilder, our youth development center, because we receive federal funding and it is classified as being received by the Department of Children's Services, then our entire department is now under the required compliance of Title VI, not just Wilder, who received the federal funding, even if Wilder received federal funding for a position, put a certain position in place. So that's something to, you know, that we bring out in, in training as well, that you can't really isolate, even if you have a large agency and maybe you're in Middle Tennessee, West Tennessee, East Tennessee, if your agency in Middle Tennessee receives federal funding, then your mm -hmm. agency in West and East also have to comply with Title VI. Right. And it's it really is about getting to know your service population and being culturally responsive and respectful so that the services are accessible and maybe thinking outside of the box in some ways. And that's, you know, that is part of staying in compliance, but it's also part of good quality service too, is so that you can actually serve the population that the services are intended for. I agree. So what are some of the agencies that are covered by Title VI? It's pretty, there's a lot of different agencies. Yeah, there are. Um, and, and just to name a few, and of course, this is definitely not a all-inclusive list, but you know, social services are covered by Title VI, public transportation, housing, community development, parks and recreation, education, whether that's elementary, secondary, or higher, those are areas that are also covered by Title VI. You know, again, a focal point and a primary reason for those areas falling into requirement of Title VI just deals with the funding aspect. If those respective agencies receive federal financial assistance, then the expectation is to comply. Yeah. And in many ways, it's really good for those of us at DCS to be aware of Title VI. So as we serve children and youth, that we could advocate for their rights, especially under Title VI, and just be aware of that in these other settings, in hiring or in law enforcement or education or something to that effect, so that we can kind of raise our cultural awareness so that we can actually serve people that we're working for. For. So what if an agency is found to not be in compliance with Title VI? What are the, some of the potential consequences? Yeah, the big thing would be obviously a termination of funding for the violating agency or government or possibly a suspension of funding. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things that I, I mentioned during training, and just it's a fact that DCS has extended contracts to providers because DCS needs that service. 
or needs mm-hmm. the provider to provide the service to our client. And mm-hmm. so I say that to say this, if an agency is found to not be in compliant and DCS is made aware of it, and it's one of our providers under contract, of course, we're going to communicate with them. We're going to investigate. We're going to find out what the root cause is and then try to develop, obviously, a plan to correct it. Here right. things of, you know, let's put together an action plan to resolve this matter and also in hopes that it doesn't occur again. So if an agency is found to be in violation, DCS would seek to obtain voluntary compliance. Hope the agency mm-hmm. acknowledges it, whether it was intentional or not. I officially doubt if it was intentional. But yeah. the fact that it occurred, it occurred. So now we have to deal with it. So, again, I want to say that or I'm saying that because there will be efforts to correct the matter and there will be efforts to continue to work with the agency unless it's just so overtly blatant that Mm -hmm. unfortunately, you know, there may have to be a termination of funding and even a termination in that agreement with that agency. But the biggest penalty, again, is termination of funding for the violating uh, Mm -hmm. entity. That does make sense that an agency may unintentionally put something in place that's in non-compliant. And again, it goes back to getting to know the people we serve and what their needs are and being culturally sensitive. And I do want to mention one thing, Serena, if the matter needs to be escalated up, then, Mm -hmm. you know, it could be sent up to the Department of Justice for appropriate legal action if it got to that level because obviously when we think of government, we think of federal government, state government, and local government. Mm-hmm. So. It, it can escalate. There's a lot of measures put in place to try to work with the, those service providers before it would ever get to a point Absolutely. of Absolutely, yes. Mm-hmm. A lot of the providers we have contracts with and that we work with have requirements that they show compliance. I know that there are materials that they're required to show. Can you tell us about what that looks like for our providers yes. should they meet the requirements? Yeah, one of the things, well, a few, few things here. One, the providers need to have a mechanism in place for advising beneficiaries of their right under Title VI and how to file a discrimination complaint. Now, that may look like something to this effect, having Title VI brochures in a common area where all the clients have access, having a Title VI poster, which has information about Title VI, what it covers, how to file a complaint if necessary, or they feel the need to do so. Each agency must identify a person to handle Title VI matters within their respective agency, even if the person isn't labeled their Title VI coordinator, someone mm-hmm. needs to have responsibility to ensuring compliance, Title mm-hmm. VI compliance within that facility and training. Training is a big part of education. Mm-hmm. And so annually, the providers are required to have training for their staff. And we also inform providers to, during their new employee orientation, to also mm-hmm. include Title VI information as a part of that checklist as they're informing staff, new staff, regarding important information aspect at that job, but just to mention it. So, you know, those are some ways that providers can stay and show compliance. And then lastly, Providers send to us, DCS, on an annual basis, Title VI, a Title VI survey, which basically gives an insight and provides information about their agency, like their staff, racial makeup, their right. beneficiaries who they serve, and their racial makeup. And then they also submit to us, they being providers, an implementation plan. And both that Title VI survey and implementation plan are submitted on an annual basis. Mm-hmm. And the implementation plan gives a overall view of the agency. So it includes the information on this from the survey regarding staff 
and beneficiary makeup, but also has them reveal or submit their policies to say, no, we have a Title VI policy in place. We have a complaint process that we utilize, and here's some goals that we have for the future. Here's some accomplishments that we had during the past fiscal year. Those are ways that an agency can demonstrate effort to remain compliant. It is a really good process, and I know you do an annual training about Title VI. So, again, we're able to reflect and understand more about the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and what Title VI means for agencies like ours. I was researching for our podcast today, and I found an interesting article um, about a time when you met Nelson Mandela. And I was like, wow, how appropriate for our affirmative action director to meet such a trailblazer in tackling racism in South Africa. Could you tell us a little about your experience meeting Mr. Mandela? Yes. So first of all, it was very (laughs) inspirational and and motivational because I was an undergraduate student at Austin Peay State University (laughs) in Clarksville, Tennessee. And so it was actually an academic event. It was a study abroad program that I participated in. Our total group number was 24, and there were 18 students and six adults, four were professors. And so we were going to uh, South Africa. We had our agenda, of course, our our itinerary. So we knew we were going to South Africa and that we would spend our first week at the time called the University of the North in Sabinga, South Africa. And so as we were there on the campus and and moving through our itinerary, it was made known to us probably our second day there that Nelson Mandela would actually be visiting the campus. Wow. Um, at that time, and I'm dating myself here, but the year was 90, 1993, mm-hmm. and Nelson Mandela had not long been released from prison. I think he was released in 1990, and so he had served 27 years in prison for his work opposing discrimination and inhumane treatment mm-hmm. of, of Black South Africans by the apartheid government system. Once we found out that he was going to be present, the administrators at the university actually said, we believe we can coordinate a meeting for your group. Now, we cannot hold him long, which, of course, we understand. He was a very yeah. busy person. But it actually occurred. And Nessa Mandela, when he found out he had American tourists on the campus, uh-huh. he said, I'd love to meet him. And uh-huh. so during, I think it was probably our fourth day there, they scheduled the, the event. And Nelson Mandela actually allowed each one of us to go around and shake his hand. And wow. unbeknownst to me and other members of our group, for our pleasant surprise, one of our group members, he was actually taking a picture, and he captured each one of us as we shook Nelson Mandela's hand. And wow. so, obviously, we were extremely excited about that, yes. uh, you know, capture of a historical moment, in, okay. in, in my opinion, us having the opportunity to meet him. You have a person with Nelson Mandela who not just fought for civil rights, mm-hmm. because oftentimes civil rights, persons who hear that will try to designate that just to the United States, but yeah. he actually, meaning Nelson Mandela, you know, for human rights, so it became yeah. global. It was a exactly. world uh, matter. And so uh-huh. I remember when it came, my opportunity to, to shake his hand, I said yeah. something to the effect, an honor to meet you. And he was, he said, it's, it's very nice to meet you as well. <laughs> and I was wow. like, wow, that was, that was awesome. <laughs> and so uh, again, very inspirational uh, yes. event. 
and we had a great opportunity. And I don't think any of us actually took that for granted at all because, again, we understood the magnitude of who he was as a not just national figure with uh, South Africa, but also a global figure. So it was great. It was really, really awesome. I bet. Yeah, he's a global humanitarian and he's had a huge impact. And I kind of like to think that even here at DCS, he planted a seed with you and you have brought that to us and have grown that even with your work at Head Start, your work with DCS and your career in child welfare and with affirmative action and civil rights. It is meaningful, that connection you made with Mr. Mandela. Yeah, I I think so. And I appreciate Mm -hmm. what you just shared. We all have a a whole lot more similar than we do different. We absolutely do. Say thank you so much, Donovan, for joining us for this DCS Talks edition. I really appreciate you being here. And I want to say thank you, Serena, for the invitation. I appreciate Mm -hmm. it. And for our listeners, please listen again to hear other subject matter experts like Donovan Haynes discussing ways to advocate for children and building relationships.